Okay? Okay. Again, we have an interesting story in, uh, in this text, 19.21 through 20, verse 1 of the book of Acts. It's interesting from a number of levels. Uh, and we're going to look at, try to look at each one of the levels or different perspectives that we'll find in this, in this uh, uh, section of Acts 19. The church in Ephesus has been planted quite a while ago. It had been around for a while. Uh, most likely it, it has been around long enough that, that people are, uh, some people anyway, are maturing in Christ. They've come, some people have come to faith in Christ. They're growing. Uh, the evidence is pretty clear, I would argue, that that the Spirit is at work in this town, yet at the same time, for the most part, this city, Ephesus, is full of pagan people. As a matter of fact, not only is it full of pagan people, but we find pretty clearly that it is the center, at least locally, the center of pagan worship. You get the sense, just in the reading from Tom, don't you? That, that Ephesus is, this, is like an epicenter of pagan worship. And there's no question that is the case, although... I would argue that the people that live in Ephesus in this text kind of overstate the case a little bit. Um, but be that as it may, uh, that's where we find ourselves. The church has been planted a while ago. Uh, we saw last week, uh, if you watched online and the week before, Paul has been in Ephesus for a while. He's been ministering for a little while there. And we come to verse 21, and um, Paul... Uh, is talking about his plans, verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Now, some people have argued that's a, a prophetic statement of Paul because of what is going to happen to him in a little while. He's going to be arrested and thrown, in, and, and, and as a prisoner, he was going to be hauled off to Rome. Um, I, I don't know if that's more of a prophetic thing or as much as this is his desire to do these things, to go to these locations. He wishes, uh, his desire, his hope, his longing is to go back to Macedonia, Achaia, Jerusalem, and then go to Rome. So you do that what you will. That's what he states here. Uh, but the thing that is important to recognize is a couple things in verse 21 before we get off of it. When he says... It, it, when, he, when he resolves in his spirit to go to these places, these are, for the most part, places where the church has already been planted. Well, not Rome, per se, at this point, perhaps. But the rest of these locations, the church has already been planted. There's a church in Rome. There's a church in Achaia. There's churches in, in Macedonia. But, but his heartbeat is to do what then? To strengthen the church. So, Paul is not merely a church planter, is he? He's not just someone running around planting churches, getting people saved, move on. But his heart is also what? That those who are true believers will what? Will grow up into him who is the head, even Christ, right? Does that make sense? And you recognize that if you go jump later on in, in both Acts, it'll start to become more and more clear that he's really hot after people maturing in Christ. You read all of his letters to all the different churches, and it's really clear, isn't it? What he wants from them is not merely that they're just going to be evangelists, right? Or that people will be saved, but he wants for them to do what? To grow up. The, not only is the hope there, but the expectation is there, and it pours out of all of his letters. The expectation that people will grow up in Christ, mature in Christ. 
It is a, a major drive of his, which is why he spends so much time writing to churches, which is why he is so flummoxed by the church in Galatia. Because from his theological perspective, what's going on in Galatia doesn't make any, any sense. Which is why as he works his way through writing to, to the Corinthian church, those who are supposed to be believers, and we have two of his recorded letters, there may have been three or four, there definitely was at least three, there may have been four. It's pretty clear when you get into 2 Corinthians, which is the last of his series of letters, that once again we find Paul kind of flummoxed, like, what's going on? This does not, when I think, it's almost like you can hear Paul say, my perspective is, and my theology is, that if he began the good work in you, he will what? He will continue to perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. And he writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians, I don't see this happening. Which is why at the end of the book he says, examine yourselves to see if you're of the faith. Galatians, the same thing. This does not, what's, what, who you are doesn't make sense to what is theologically true. That's the argument in Galatians and in 2 Corinthians. John is basically making the same argument in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. He's also making the same argument in 3 John with regard to Diotrephes, one of the elders of the church. That's not the way Christians are. And you see that repeatedly throughout Paul's writings, John's writings, Peter's writings, Jude. You see it everywhere, don't you? There's, on one hand, there is, there is a hot movement in Paul's life and all the rest of the New Testament authors, not just that people will be saved but that, and that churches will be formed, but that people will grow. That's the expectation, and, and it's driven by Paul's and John's and Peter's and Jude's and whoever wrote Hebrews, it's driven by all their theology. It's not just some hope that's hanging out in thin air. It is an expectation. And it's a longing as well. And that's where you see in verse 21. You, you get a sense, you kind of feel Paul's heartbeat here, don't you? I mean, you have to when you realize he's talking about some major travels, isn't he? And there's no local septa to help him out. This is a serious thing for Paul. It's a serious undertaking. It's not just to plant churches and see, see churches um, or people get saved, but it is that they grow in Christ. That's what verse 21 is about. Verse 22, and having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, we've already, been, we've already been introduced to Timothy. This is our first interaction with Erastus. He himself stayed in Asia for a while. So he's going to continue to minister to the church in Asia for a while. Ephesus, of course, being uh, part of that group. <clears throat> About that time, verse 23, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. I'm going to stop on that for a second. We've seen the, the term the way show up uh, elsewhere. It's actually, this is the third time in the book of Acts the term the way has shown up. It showed up earlier in this chapter, and it also showed up for the first time in chapter 9. What's really interesting, and I think it's purposeful by Luke, he puts it in chapter 9, and he puts it twice here in chapter 19. And I think it's really interesting because the first time the term the way shows up in the book of Acts is, is referencing not Paul, but Saul. 
In other words, what I mean by the same person, I know, but it isn't the same person, is it? Right? It's the same physical person, but it certainly isn't the same spiritual person, is it? Not even close. The term the way is show, shows up on the radar screen in the book of Acts for the very first time because Saul is going to get written permission to go and do what? To kill and persecute people that are of the way. He is hot after those who are part of the way. To destroy them. To destroy the followers. And then in chapter 19 earlier, he is referenced as being part of the way. Right? And then here, what do we find? Again, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Is Paul dramatically being connected now in chapter 19 with the way? Yes. Now this is really important in the storyline of Acts. Even though the term the way only shows up three times, we're at the last time now, it's really important that we see this because what's, what Luke is doing, and it's very important, he's, he's identifying, purposefully identifying that Paul is the same person physically as Saul who was persecuting those of the way, and now he is of the way. There is, there is a dramatic connection between those he persecuted and who he's a member of now. Why is Luke doing that? Because he doesn't want anybody to think that, Luke, that Paul's views of things are a different religion or a different way. Why? Because what are, uh, what are, 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 Jew, are Jews and, and, and now Gentiles focused against Paul or are they not? Yeah, because they're thinking if we can destroy Paul, we what? Destroy the way, and that's not the case. Because the way is bigger than Paul. Paul's part of the way, but Paul is not what? The way. And Paul is not the head of the way. Who's the head of the way? Christ is. And Christ can't be destroyed. That's already been tried. Correct? It's already been tried. As a matter of fact, this guy, Paul, who is part of the way, was doing what? Desirous of persecuting those who are the way, and most likely he was part of the group that was crying out, crucify him, and he was probably there when Jesus was tried and convicted because he certainly was part of that group. Does that make sense? And he was based out of Jerusalem. So he tried, he tried to kill the head of the way. Instead of killing the head of the way, he became Part of the way. Isn't that interesting? That is really important in light of the rest of this text. Because what you're going to find in this text, it's very interesting what Luke is doing here. We're introduced to a variety of people, some of which are part of the way, some of which are not part of the way, some of which are Gentiles, some of which are Jews. You find this is the second time that Gentiles come strongly against, against uh, Christianity. Uh, interestingly enough, both times the Gentiles come strongly against Christianity, it ultimately is linked to money. And you'll see that to be the case here as well. For the Jews, it ultimately is linked to what? It's an attack on Judaism. 
And so that's why they're hot and heavy against Christianity, or in this case, the way. So again, in this riot that's taking place in Ephesus, it's primarily a Gentile thing. You'll notice again, verse 23, but at about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That's, that's another way of saying a huge disturbance against the way. We're going to find out in a little bit how big the disturbance really is. Verse 24, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know from what business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul is persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. I'm just going to read to end of verse 27. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Let's start at the very end of verse 27 work our way backwards, if we may. Um, what we find out, interesting statements, the reason why I'm starting at the end and then we're going to go back is because of what, what Demetrius says here. She, talking about uh, this great goddess Artemis, she whom all Asia and the world worship. I mean, I don't even know if that can slip into hyperbole term, a, a hyperbolic term. I don't know if we can ever even identify that as hyperbolic. Because that's not even reality. I mean, that's not even a hint of reality. Even, I mean, now we know that's the case because we know the entire world, right? And they didn't. But even beyond that, even historically at that time, that wasn't the case. It wasn't even close to being the case. This god, Artemis, was directly connected to Ephesus. Artemis' main temple was there at Ephesus. Was Artemis worshipped elsewhere? Yes. But the further you got away from Ephesus, the less it was worshipped. And the more other gods became prevalent. Does that make sense? So what's going on here is that, that Demetrius is merely trying to do what? Womp up the crowd. And right now he's got a small crowd, right? Just a small crowd. But he's trying to womp up the crowd, trying to get them aggravated, trying to get them fired up over something, right? What is he trying to get them fired up over? Well, it becomes really clear real quickly. First of all, you'll see, going back up to 23, 24, this man Demetrius is a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis. And it says, brought no little business to the craftsmen. What that means, basically, is that there are craftsmen and then there's silversmiths. The craftsmen were people who basically carved from wood the, art, the idols. Okay, they were woodworkers. No offense, Ken. They were woodworkers, and they carved these idols out of wood. And then they would turn these carved idols over Demetrius, and Demetrius would take that wood, and he'd pound onto the wood thin sheets, really super thin sheets of silver and cover it with silver so that it would gleam and shine. It would catch the eye because a wooden, um, a wooden idol wouldn't catch the eye. It's just a chunk of wood. But when you put silver over it, it, it flashes in the sunlight, it, it shines, it catches your eye, and it looks majestic. Does that make sense? So the silversmith 
turns to the woodworkers, as it were, and says, we got a problem. He gathers them together. <clears throat> Verse 25. And his first statement is what? What is his first statement about in 25? What's the problem? Verse 25, what's the problem? We're losing money. Isn't that it? Did you notice it? Verse, in verse 25, men, you know from this business we have our wealth. You know what that means? Our wealth is in jeopardy. And we find out why in just a little bit. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, and Asia is not the way we think of Asia before, uh, right now. It was more in the area of Turkey. This Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. He's talking to people who do what for a living? Make gods with their hands. And he is a man who does that himself, correct? And he's upset because what is happening is Paul and his followers are saying that these people who make gods with hands are scamming you. You get it? They're scamming you. They have convinced you that these are real gods and they're not. And they're taking you to the cleaners. And so, needless to say, these woodworkers and Demetrius are concerned because their, their very way of life is, is it's what? They're under attack and their very way of life is in danger, right? It's, it's in danger. They're, they are, they're like status people. They're high society. And people have become convinced that these gods are really important. And by the way, this God that's being referenced here, Artemis, is a fertility God. And the fertility God, Artemis, was looked to both, both to help people have children, and in an agrarian society, if you don't have children, guess what happens to your agrarian way of life? It doesn't work. Because in order to make your farm work now, you've got to do what? You've got to hire. Right? And if you hire, where's your profits going? into your hired hands, not to your family. If you have children, that is for all effect, all effect and purposes, your family ends up being what? Free labor. Elsewhere, earlier we saw it. Slaves, right? Slaves, functionally speaking. <laughs> yeah, when you're children, that's right, you're slaves to your dad. <laughs> I saw the wheels spinning over there. <laughs> Jim's just sitting there quietly, sheepishly. <laughs> but that's reality in an agrarian society. <clears throat> and so they would worship Artemis. They would sacrifice to Artemis. They would faithfully lean on Artemis so that they could have children. And then beyond that, so that their cattle and their sheep and their goats could have little cattle, sheep, and goats. Does that make sense? And then if they weren't, if they weren't livestock farmers, then they were crop farmers. 
And so they would cry out to Artemis and sacrifice to Artemis so that their lives are so, so that their plants, so that their so that all their their crops would be fertile. Their ground would be fertile. And so ultimately they would what? Make lots of money. Yeah. So on both sides it's all about money, isn't it? It absolutely is. But the problem is that Paul and all his followers in the church in Ephesus are saying all gods made by hands are what? Worthless. They're not gods. They're worthless. They can't do anything. They can't cause your wives to have children. They can't cause your livestock to give birth. They can't cause your crops to yield nothing. Absolutely nothing. Now, as a under someone who understands the Old Testament and understands Deuteronomy, you know that Deuteronomy tells us very clearly that it's God that does that. And it's not just Deuteronomy, but in the law, it's really clear. God says, listen, he, he tells the Jews in the Old Testament, if, if, if you honor me, I'll bless you. If you don't honor me, I'll curse you. And that cursing is described very specifically. It includes not having children. It includes not having any crops. It includes your, your livestock, not giving birth. It includes all of that and more. And what is God saying? What is Yahweh saying when he declares that? He's declaring, I'm in charge of those things. Those things happen because of me. And history records over and over again that that's absolutely the case. It absolutely is. Nowhere more clearly seen than in the book of Habakkuk. Very clearly shown. So what happens? Verse 28, when they, that is the woodworkers, hear this from Demetrius, the silversmith, they, they, when they hear this, they're enraged. And started crying out, great is Artemis of the, of the Ephesians. Now, can I just pause this for a second? Well, again, we're just wandering through the text. Do you really think that these woodworkers are saying great is Artemis of the Ephesians? Because they're all enthralled with Artemis of the Ephesians? Yes! <laughs> Great is the money. That's what they're really saying because that's what they're all worked up over, isn't it? That's what, they, it's all worked, that's what they're all worked up over. So when they cry out, verse 29, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And by the way, it's interesting how Luke words this. And it, it's recorded by him that this is actually what they said. But it is interesting, when he says, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, does not it sound like the Ephesians are the ones that are really great. Not Artemis. He serves them. What's that? She, I'm sorry. She serves them. You're correct. Very much so. Yes, it sounds like. But they're all about the money. And so when they say great is Artemis of the Ephesians, no, no, no. It's great is your income because of Artemis. Because you have duped people into worshiping Artemis. So this idea of them being enraged in verse 28 does not mean in their little group they're enraged. 
the idea of them being enraged is they are so fired up and emotionally out of control, they're running through the city. They're running through the city. They're so enraged, they're just venting everywhere about, on the one hand, Artemis, and on the other hand, the people of the way. You follow me so far? It gets so bad, it says, verse 29, so the city of Ephesus was filled with confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. Now, you need to understand, this, this um, theater they're talking about is not like a theater you know of. If you, if you want to get a good picture of the theater idea here, think, what's the Eagle Stadium's name? Lincoln Financial. That's what we're talking about. It sat at least 25,000 people. Get the picture? It's a big place. And the implication is it's jammed with people. Because they inflamed, they enraged all of the people of Ephesus. And the people of Ephesus just packed in. Now it's interesting though, we find out the next verse. But when Paul wished to go, uh, I'm sorry, not there, uh, where is it? Um, oh, verse, uh, verse 32. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they'd come together. <laughs> they, they don't understand what's going on. There's just a crowd, and there's a lot of emotion involved. So we're coming along. We're going to the stadium. Woo, let's go. And they're all packing the stadium. They're screaming and yelling and hollering. There's mass confusion, and half the people, or most of the people, are there saying, what's going on? <laughs> exactly what's going on there's something happening and I want to be a part of it right go back up to where we were before the city's filled with confusion and you'll notice I just that other part talked about confusion as well so there's mass confusion they rush together in the theater and they drag with them Gaius and Aristarchus first time introducing us to Aristarchus as well he's going to be introduced a total of four times in the scriptures four times Aristarchus is um, uh, someone along with uh, Gaius who are Paul's companions in travel, it says. You see that. In other words, they're faithful people. They desire to see the gospel proclaimed. They desire to see the desire of the church to be planted. They desire to see people to grow in Christ. In other words, they are of one mind with, with Paul. Does that make sense? That's who they are. And Aristarchus shows up, it's interesting, four other times throughout the scriptures. And in every single time, Guess what he's after? The same thing Paul's after. There's never any wavering with regard to Aristarchus. We, we know very little about him except to know that over and over and over and over again, there is a pattern in Aristarchus that he is passionate for the things of Christ. He is fired up, passionate, moved, and unwavering about the things of Jesus. That's going to become interesting in a little bit, by the way. <clears throat> so if we work our way through, they, they drag Gaius and Aristarchus into this mass confusion in the stadium. Now, do Gaius and Aristarchus know what's going to happen to them? They don't have a clue. What do you think? Can I just ask you real quick, what do you think they think is going to happen to them? Yeah, they're going to die. Does that make sense? That's the only thing that would make sense. 
we're going to die here. We're going to be killed here. And the reason why I point that out is because what I just said about Aristarchus. And we know, uh, we don't know a whole lot about this Gaius. Some people say that it's maybe the same Gaius that shows up in 1 John. Uh, we don't know. We really don't know a whole lot about him either. But whoever they are, they're faithful people. But what's interesting, I find, and I, the reason why I mentioned the Aristarchus is because here they hear experience this horrific experience. Now I want you to ask yourself a question. If you got drug into a midst of a crowd of people who are out of control, hate, full of hate, full of anger, I mean, death is pouring out of their eyes and out of their mouth. 25,000 people, and you're the focus. Because that's the case, wasn't it? You get the picture, they're surrounded, all the people in the stands, and they're out in the field. And every single person in the field is screaming. How would that make you feel? I, I'm just curious. Yeah. What? Yeah, outnumbered. Yeah, what did you say? Incredibly intimidated, right? Wouldn't it? What else? Incredibly nervous. How about fearful? Would that not make sense? Wouldn't it? I love the second song we sang this morning about fear. What a great choice of song. Would it make sense to be absolutely terrified? Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it make sense to think about, if I may add to it, wouldn't it make sense to think about ways to get out of it? Wouldn't it make sense to think about ways to try to mitigate the situation a little bit? To help calm people down a little bit? Wouldn't that make sense? Do you read anything in here of Gaius and Aristarchus doing that? As a matter of fact, what are they doing? Evidently, at least according to the text. They're just standing there. <laughs> they were drug in there, and they're just standing there. I mean, I, I'm just trying to think humanly. My natural thing to do, if here we got all, the, all you guys here, my natural thing to do, if all y'all just decided you're going to come against me in some very basic things that I said, and you're just coming after me, railing at me. And want to throw me out of the church. Want to, want to remove me from the pastorate. You know what my natural tendency is to do? Defend myself. Does that make sense? Doesn't it? Defend myself. Protect myself. Try to figure out ways to calm you down, right? Or whatever. Doesn't that make sense? Isn't that the way most people are? It, especially if you can't leave. Jim was like, where's the exit doors? Yeah, but if you can't get out the exit doors, don't you think that maybe I can, I can't make matters worse, right? Can I make matters worse here? I can't make matters any worse than this, what's going on here in the text. So no matter what I say, it's either going to remain the same or maybe I can calm down some. Wouldn't you expect them to do so? Now, let me throw a curveball at you a little bit more before I get off of this. Can you see yourself maybe trying to compromise a little bit? In the process? Can you see yourself doing that? At least from a human perspective, can you see that happening? Right? I mean, yeah, 
I mean, do we even need to talk about that? It's obvious, right? But the implication, it's just an implication, the implication of the text is that that's not the case. I would argue it's stronger than an implication. Because if, especially Aristarchus, because he shows up four times in the scriptures after this, or three times in the scriptures after this, if Aristarchus would have done that, I suspect the scriptures would have recorded that he later repented. But there's no such record of that. Instead, the implication very strong in the text is that they stood there. You kind of get the sense of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, don't you? You kind of get the sense of Daniel when the praying was not allowed, don't you? That's the kind of the feeling that kind of exudes out of the text a little bit. That's really kind of important because if we see um, Aristarchus and Gaius in that perspective, then everything else starts coming together pretty nicely. Because verse 30, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Verse 31, and even some of the um, Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and, and were urging him not to venture into the theater. So here we got Aristarchus and Gaius, and they're in the middle of this mess. 25,000 people perhaps in there screaming and yelling, mass confusion. I mean, there's almost blood shooting out of their eyes. And they're just standing there. Kind of like Martin Luther during the Reformation. Here I stand, I can do no other. Same idea, right? And what's Paul doing? He's out there outside saying, man, what do you all say we get together and pray for those two? Is that what he's saying? What does Paul want to do? Exactly. <laughs> what does Paul do? Paul says, I'm going in. That's what it says, verse 30. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, I don't think when it says Paul wanted to go within the crowd, I don't think this is like a, a Peter thing at Jesus' crucifixion. You know, kind of moving in around, you know, under under secrecy, see what's going on. When it says here, Paul wanted to wade in among the crowd, you know what Paul wanted to do? <laughs> well, I suspect he may not even initially be heading for the stage. I could see Paul just wading into the crowd itself because if he was heading to the stage, he would have gone. I think Paul was going to go right in the midst of them. That's what, that's what the text implies. He goes right in the midst. He's up in the stands. That's what he wants to do. He wants to go up into the stands and say, Excuse me, brethren, all you people right around me, they're in confusion. Let's talk. I'm Paul. <laughs> Let's talk about this. Let's come and reason together. That's what he wants to do. Paul wants to wade into the midst of the crowd, and he wants to preach Christ and Him crucified to a crowd that is absolutely inflamed. Now, can I ask you a quick question? Does that sound familiar to you? Now, the easy answer is, yeah, that's kind of Paul-esque, isn't it? He's kind of bold, isn't he? He kind of likes to get down and dirty and stuff, right? You see that up till now? You see it even more so in coming chapters? Paul likes to do this. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? But that's not what I'm asking. 
That's not what I'm asking at all. And I don't think that's what Luke wants the reader to ask. I think what Luke wants the reader to ask is, does that sound familiar? Not with Paul. But does that sound familiar with Christians? Does that sound familiar? Because certainly we can see this not just with Paul, right? In the scriptures you can see it with lots of people, can't you? I mean, early on in the church, one of the first people we see it really obvious with is who? Even before then. Peter, right? Acts chapter 2, it's pretty obvious, right? Is Peter just waiting in? This same Jesus who you crucified? That sounds like he's kind of wading into the midst, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> comforting even, right? Yeah. And then Stephen, my goodness. And it's not just Peter in Acts chapter 2, is it? It's chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. We get, uh, we get Ananias and Sapphira, the first example of someone who's not, right? But then we come to Acts 6. Stephen, along with the other deacons, are chosen. Acts chapter 7, Stephen does what? He steps up to the plate and he makes a defense. Doesn't he? Sound familiar, doesn't it? And then afterwards, you find Peter doing it again. And then what do you find? Chapter 9, Paul comes to faith in Christ on the road to Damascus, doesn't he? And a couple days later, what's he doing? He's preaching Christ, right? And then the rest of the time, what do you see? You, Peter shows up again occasionally doing it, but what do you primarily see? Paul. And then you see Aristarchus and Gaius, and you see other Timothy, and you see other people too, right? And then afterwards, you start to see more and more of them, don't you? And when Paul gets thrown in prison, what happens? Everybody steps up to the plate, and all the Christians step up to the plate and start preaching the gospel, don't they? And persecution is raging everywhere, isn't it? So it is, it, we have to argue it is the biblical theme in the New Testament, correct? It is the biblical theme of those who are loved by Jesus, who as a result love Jesus, that they are what? They're wading in, aren't they? So and even if you look in the Old Testament, do we not see people wading in? Don't we? What did Stephen say before he died? Which one of the prophets did you what? Did you not kill? Right? So in the Old Testament you see as well. So it's a common theme, Old Testament, New Testament, right? It's very common. 2,000 years of recorded history. It seems like godly people are doing what? They're wading in, aren't they? They're wading in. I would argue that Luke's statement here about Paul is not for us to say, wow, wasn't Paul amazing? It was, it's not to say, wow, Gaius and Aristarchus really loved Jesus. Now, it's true, right? Did Paul love Jesus? Did Gaius and Aristarchus love Jesus? Yeah. It's pretty evident, right? That's not the point. The point is more, this is kind of normal. This is kind of normal. That doesn't mean that Paul would have been 
doing the best thing possible by wading in. I'm not going to fault the Christians, the disciples holding him back. I'm not going to fault them for that in that, in that situation in life. And I'm not going to fault these seeming believer Asiarchs who are leaders. I'm not going to fault them for doing what they're doing. We don't have all the background story. It doesn't mean every chance to wade in we're going to jump in with both feet. But it should be somewhat common, shouldn't it? And more importantly, should it, should it not be at least in our hearts something that is desirous at minimum? Desirous to jump in? Desirous to defend my Redeemer? Desirous to defend the way? Would that not make sense? Would that, would, sh- let me change that. Should that not be expected among true believers? That at least the desire is there. If we look at the consistent testimony of the Scriptures, should we not expect that that would still continue if God is unchanging? Yeah, I think we should. It's important, I think, in verse 30 and 31 that we recognize Paul's desire and commitment for Christ is evidencing itself in the way he wants to respond. Jumping down to 32, now some cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not know why they'd come together. A little, probably Lucan style of humor there. <clears throat> Verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had brought forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand, wanting to make a defense for the crowd. Now don't miss the point. Alexander is not trying to make a defense of Gaius and, and Aristarchus. He's not trying to make a defense of Christianity and Jesus. What Alexander is doing as the spokesman for the Jews is making a defense for monotheism and a defense of Judaism. In effect, the idea is Alexander is getting up and saying, hey, I know that they're monotheists and we're monotheists. We believe in one God, they believe in only one God. Okay, we get that. But please understand, we're not them. He's making a defense of Judaism. Don't lump us into them. Why would he say that? Why would he be trying to make that argument? Well, to save his skin, yes, but one of Paul's statements is what? Jesus is the what? The way, but he's also the fulfillment of the law. And who does the law belong to from the common man's thinking? The Jewish people. And Paul's been claiming everywhere that Jesus is a fulfillment that the, that the entirety of the Old Testament pointed toward. That was, I mean, that's, that's like part of his major theme, isn't it? Everywhere he goes. So the Jews identify Alexander, put him up to get the crowd to, to not come after the Jewish people. Verse 34. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours They all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They were like, take a hike to the Jews and Alexander. Because just like Paul and all the rest of these people of the way, Gaius and and Aristarchus and all the rest of them have rejected, so have you. That is, rejected Artemis, so have you. That's the point. Those Jews must have felt pretty uncomfortable there in the stadium, I would think. Verse 35. 
And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know? This is where we get into some apologetic stuff, the defense of the faith. It's very interesting. Their defense of the faith in comparison to Paul's defense of the faith is a very intriguing study. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the city of Ephesus is, a, is temple keeper of the great Artemis and, the sacred, and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? It's interesting. Verse 36, Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing, rash. So this guy gets up, the town clerk, and by the way, town clerk does not mean town clerk as you know it today. He's like the highest ruler in Ephesus. He's it. So when he speaks, people listen. And so what does he say? Here's his, here's his apologetic for, for the worship of Artemis. Number one, Ephesus is, keep, is, is, is temple keeper of the great Artemis. In other words, we have the temple here. Right? This is his argument for the legitimacy of the worship of Artemis. The temple's here. The building is here that makes the worship of Artemis legitimate somehow. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty weak argument, isn't it? Argument number two. The sacred stone fell from the sky. Huh? What? What? His argument is that the, the sacred stone fell from the sky. What's he talking about? Most likely, there was a meteorite that landed close by, and what one of these, not a woodworker, but a, a stone worker did was he took that stone, the, 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 um, uh, the asteroid or meteorite, and he carved it into an idol that represented what was going to become known as Artemis. And he labeled it as Artemis, the goddess of fertility. Does that make sense so far? So because we have a temple and because the stone fell from the sky, there it is. That's their apologetic. Certainly our religion is true. That's, that's basically the entirety of their, of their uh, apologetic, their defense of the faith, so to speak. Well, what is the defense of the faith that Paul's been pre preaching? It's the same defense of the faith that Peter's been preaching and all the rest of them, right? And it is summed up by, if I may compare contrast, you have a temple, you have a stone, right? God walked among us. And he was crucified for our sins. And he rose again from the dead and walked among us. And he ascended to heaven, and he's returning. And everything he said came to pass. Everything that was prophesied about him came to pass in the Old Testament. It was fulfilled completely in him. Not one prophecy was failed. He accomplished what he came to accomplish completely. And he's coming back. And when he comes back, he's coming back to judge. You've got a temple, and you've got a stone that fell from the sky. You know what the point of that is? When you look at, Art, at, at, at Gaius 
and when you look at the storyline of Aristarchus, and when you look at the storyline of Paul and Peter and Timothy and James and Jude and whoever wrote Hebrews and all the rest of these faithful people throughout the New Testament, Stephen and all the rest of them, and the way they lived, and the way they thought, It was all based not on a stone that fell from the sky. It was not based on the reality there's a temple in town. It was based upon the living, dying, and living Redeemer who was prophesied and fulfilled the prophecies. And those truths, by the Spirit, so transformed these people that they were willing to die, that they were willing to suffer, that they were willing to do all that they did to the glory of the one who had redeemed them. That was their apologetics. And we've talked about apologetics repeatedly throughout the book of Acts. Nowhere better seen than Acts chapter 1 and 2. Jesus' last words before he goes to heaven and then once again a fulfillment, right? What did he say? I'm going to go, but I'm going to send a helper. Didn't he? And when I send a helper, what's going to happen? You will receive power when that helper comes, right? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you what? Will be, shall be, witnesses where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, <laughs> Lynchburg, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, right? And what happened? Acts chapter 2. They received power, did they not? Peter, who cowered, suddenly was transformed, was he not? Paul, who hated Jesus, when he received the power, what happened? Transformed. Was he not? And do you see it repeatedly? You see it consistently throughout the script? Of course you do. The prophecies of God are always fulfilled. And the power of the Holy Spirit is transformational. Isn't it? And that's what you see here. A comparison contrast in the apologetic of, of, um, of this town clerk and the apologetics of the way. Isn't it interesting? The question that we asked before, I need to ask again. Sound familiar? The easy answer is yes. But does it sound familiar? That's the real important question. Does it sound familiar? And then from there, this town clerk begins to try to change the direction of the crowd. Why? Well, we, find, we don't find out right away. We don't find out until um, verse 40. Verse 40, it's, uh, he says, For we, are, we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. So why is this town clerk really speaking the way he's speaking? Why is he trying to calm the, the crowd down? 
Yes. And who, who's going to indict them? Ultimately, it will be Rome will indict them. And when Rome indicts them, what will Rome do? If Rome indicts them, they will take away all their Roman privileges, all their citizenships, and may very well raise the entire city. So why is this town clerk speaking so, so forcefully? Why is he trying so forcefully to reason and calm the people down? To save his skin, to save his money, to save his career as well as his town. Because if, if they are convicted by Rome of what they're doing, rioting without cause, they will be destroyed. And historical record shows that many cities were destroyed by Rome for this very thing. So this town clerk is not defending Artemis, is he? And it's interesting he's not, because what does he say? For you have brought these men here, verse 37... You brought these men here who, were ne who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Really? Really? Are they sacrilegious toward Artemis? Uh, totally. Are they, are they blasphemous toward Artemis? 100%. Yes, and worse than atheists. Because atheists, atheists don't have to oppose. They just say, I don't believe in God. Right? Yeah, but, but in this case, the, the way is not being passive with regard to Artemis, are they? They are being sacrilegious. They are speaking against, aren't they? And they're converting followers of Artemis, are they not? Because already the woodworkers, stonemasons, and the silversmiths are losing their livelihood. That's how significant it was. And so when he says to them, they are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemer, blasphemers, all he's doing is protecting his what? His own skin. That's all he's doing. His way of life and his own skin. So he says to them, listen, guys, you 25,000, maybe it's 23,000 now, maybe 2,000 Jews left because they're under pressure, right? I suspect the Jews left. They didn't want to be there. You 23,000 people, you got an issue? Demetrius, he, he even implies he calls out Demetrius. It says, um, um, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, take it to court. So he calls them out, which kills the, the, the entire heat, right? Which is exactly what this town clerk's trying to do. So it kills the entire heat. Because it, he dismisses them, verse, uh, verse 41, and the implication is that they all leave. And he tells Demetrius and the craftsmen to take it to court, because he knows what will happen in court. Absolutely nothing, because there are all sorts of gods who are, in some cases, lapping and duplicating throughout Rome, throughout the Roman Empire, lapping and duplicating what other gods do. So they're in, in competition. And then there's other gods who are absolutely in disagreement with other gods, absolutely opposed to what the other gods do. So the Roman government would look at this and say, what are you talking about? Because ultimately, any god that the Roman government says is acceptable to worship, and they said hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them were, then they were all acceptable to worship. 
there is potential for that, correct. Yeah, there definitely is. But be that as it may, what's interesting is he says, listen, take it to court. And they then at that point in time, he says, go away. And so they all leave, verse 41, which takes us down to chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar ceased. Now, please understand, when it says after the uproar ceased, it didn't mean that everybody was cool with the people of the way. That's not what that means. What does it mean when he says after the uproar ceased? When, when Luke records after the uproar ceased, what does that mean? Help me out. The actual riot broke, uh, broke, ended. It, it just it broke up. People went their own way. Do you think that meant that all of a sudden, like a switch, all the emotions were gone? Do you think it meant that all the hatred towards the people of the way went away? Do you think suddenly the people of the way were like the pinnacle of society? Think that's what that meant? Not at all. Nothing has changed, has it? Nothing has changed, at least for all of the craftsmen and Demetrius. You'd have to understand that now they're really fuming, right? Because the very thing they tried to do to destroy the way was thwarted. Now they're steaming. They don't want to go to court over this. They just want it to all go away. Best thing to do is do what? Knock them off in the dark of night. Wouldn't that make sense? After the uproar ceased, verse 1 of chapter 20, Paul sent for the disciples, which is another term for the church. He sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. We don't know how long he was there afterwards. It just says after encouraging them. It could have been two hours. It could have been two weeks. We don't know. I suspect it wasn't much longer than that. But do you get the sense this is just one more of those things where they drug Paul out and stoned him, and afterwards he got up and he walked back into the city? Sound familiar? Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Because Paul does this regularly. Here we find the uproar ceases. That, that means that the riot broke up, and what does Paul do immediately? Well, he, I, now, I'm, I'm going to take liberties with the text. Paul originally was trying to get into the stadium, right, into the theater, which implies that he's right outside the theater, doesn't it? At least potentially. He's nearby, at least. Maybe even right outside. It doesn't say they drug him away from it. It's just that they encourage him not to go inside. So I just want as a possibility, think about it. The town clerk breaks up the riot. Everybody leaves the riot, and they walk out of the theater, and who do they see, maybe? <laughs> it would not surprise me that Paul's waiting outside for Gaius and Aristarchus. <laughs> Anyhow, Chick Track's nice. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Paul's standing outside the theater. He's waiting for Gaius and Aristarchus. It would make sense, wouldn't it, at some level? Especially when it says he sent for the disciples and gathered, together, gathered them together and encouraged them. So here's Aristarchus and Gaius. Hey, come on, let's go. Let's gather all the disciples together. And he gathers all the disciples together, and, and he does what? Says what he did, does, right? What does he do? Encourages them. Now, I want to stop on that one for just a second. We're almost done here. He gathers the disciples together, which says something about the disciples first, doesn't it? It says something about the church, doesn't it? What does it say about the church? 
Well, before we get to that, just the statement he gathered them together says what? Well, unity, yes, but think about it. They're willing to come and gather together, right? It says something about them, doesn't it? In that climate, in that situation that they find themselves in, he calls the disciples to come together, and they do what? They come together. Isn't that intriguing? It says something about them, doesn't it? It really does. I'm sorry? They're resilient. Their eyes are where? They're focused on, if I may quote Hebrews chapter 12, seems like their eyes are fixed on Christ or Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And, and that whole text goes down all the way down to verse 4 where it says, so that you don't lose heart, right? Does that make sense? So at some level, their eyes are focused on Christ. At some level, they're worshiping Christ. Enthralled with Christ. And so as a result of that, they do actually come together. It'd be one thing to say, hey, let's all come together. Nobody shows up, right? And we would look at that and say, at some level, it makes sense, doesn't it? Why would you want to come together in that culture, in that time frame, in that setting? But that wasn't even on the radar screen. They came together. At the same time, what do we see? They came together and Paul did what? He encouraged them, which implies something. What does it imply? They needed encouragement, correct? It implies they needed encouragement. What I find intriguing, however, is what isn't in the text of verse 1 of chapter 20. What's not in the text is how he encouraged them, is it? It's not there, is it? You see anything in there that says what he said? No. And in context, it doesn't say what he said either. It just says he encouraged them. Now, the reason why I pause on this for just a second is because today our idea of encouragement, I think, is radically different from biblical eras. In, in, in today's situation, it would be like, I understand you're, con you're, you're, you're discouraged, Charles. I understand. It's this is tough. You can't be expected to really do all that great in this situation, you know. But you know what? It's going to get better. It's going to get better. And I'll pray for you. Is th th does that sound kind of familiar? <laughs> does that sound kind of familiar? But is that in the biblical? Is that kind of communication in the biblical record? The answer is no. When Jesus encouraged the disciples, he said, "What." The world hates me. It's going to hate you too. You realize that's Jesus' encouragement <laughs> to his disciples that moment in time? You realize that? Read First and Second Peter, and you find Peter writing two letters of encouragement to people under persecution. And you know what's missing in the letter? What I just described over here. The, you know the encouragement throughout the scriptures is endure persecution, suffer well for the cause of Christ, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, remember he trod the path before you, 
Remember the righteousness He's given you, that alien righteousness. Remember the inheritance that's reserved in heaven for you. Remember He's going to return. In light of all that, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Know Jesus. Worship Jesus. Be enthralled with Jesus. Cling to Jesus. Drink deeply at the fountain of living water. And out of you will flow rivers of living water. But understand something, as that river of living, as those rivers of living water flow out of you, there's going to be a whole lot of persecution that's going to come with that. Do you realize that's the kind of encouragement that Paul and Peter and John and James and Jesus and, and, and Luke and, and the writer of Hebrews and all the rest of them do? Do you realize that? That's the encouragement. I suspect if we were in the room or in the, in the place where Paul is encouraging these people, these disciples at this point in time, I suspect a lot of his encouragement can sound like this. You know what just happened in the theater with Gaius and Aristarchus? Expect that. Expect it. And it won't always work out this well. It just won't. And for the most part, you're going to be alone. That's Paul's encouragement to Timothy, isn't it? When the whole church goes down the, down the toilet, you, Timothy, cling to what you know and what you become convinced of, 2 Timothy 3. That's Paul encouraging Timothy. That's the way it is all the time. All the time. Next time, it may not go this well that you get relief. Yeah, sometimes that happens. But not always. In fact, most times it won't happen out that way. So the, I suspect if we were flies in the wall in this meeting, you'd have heard Paul, heard Paul talking that way. Yeah, that one worked out great. None of us died. None of us got actually stoned or persecuted this time. Next time it probably won't be that way. But, oh, friends, when our eyes are fixed on Jesus and we understand what he went through and how great his love is for us, when we understand how much his love was poured out and continues to be poured out on us, is this not just light momentary affliction, 2 Corinthians chapter 4? You kind of sense that? You kind of expect to hear that from Paul there on the wall? Wouldn't you not expect that you'd hear from Paul if you're a fly on the wall that you'd hear him say, yep, these things are killing me, but they're bringing life to you, and I'm, I'm excited about that. Would you not expect Paul to say, I mean, that's pretty consistent with his ministry, isn't it? Or maybe he'd, he'd sound kind of Spurgeon-esque. You know, Spurgeon was always talking about that. He was always talking about death. And he was always declaring, you know, for unsaved people, death is the worst thing that could happen to them. Because death ushers them into the judgment of God for eternity. But for the believer, death ushers us into glory. Death ushers us into the presence of the Almighty. That's a little bit different encouragement than what we hear today, isn't it? Isn't it? 
So I asked the question I asked originally. I asked it for a third time. Does it sound familiar to us? It better, biblically, right, to sound familiar to us. But does that sound familiar to us? Does that sound familiar to us as people, other believers, live life and speak to us? And secondarily, does that sound familiar to us according to what we say to our own hearts, our own lives, as we speak to ourselves? Are we actually speaking the truth into our own lives? Or are we speaking things that create greater and greater fear? Does that make sense? Is fear available to these people in this setting? It's front and center, isn't it? What is their only hope? Their only hope is to be the very thing that I suspect if I was a fly on the wall that Paul was centering on. Your only hope is Christ. Fix your eyes on Christ. Meditate on Christ. Remember Christ. Worship Christ. Pray. Study the scriptures. Encourage one another with these words. Isn't that what you hear? But is that what we hear from within? And is that what we hear from one another? Because that is the role of the church, is it not? Isn't it? It absolutely is. And in that whole process, what are we doing? We're glorifying God and we're living out the Lord's Prayer, are we not? Our Father who art in heaven, what? Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it, as it is in heaven. Is that not exactly what, what, what do you say? Yes. Is that not exactly what the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught his disciples is all about? Your kingdom come even if it means I die. Your kingdom come even if it means if I suffer. suffer. Isn't that the Lord's prayer, prayer skinned out? Right? I think when we listen to this text, we have to come away thinking, not just is this some sort of historical, cool story in the church history. Because <laughs> it is, right? It really is. But we need to ask ourselves, is that the story of current church history? Or have we wandered? Has the church wandered? My goodness, today, if I may be blunt, we're not afraid of persecution that much, are we? Well, we are. We are. That's why we don't say anything. That's why we don't speak. That's why we don't do what we do. But but you know, right now, this moment, we even find ourselves cowering in fear over a virus that we can't see. I'm not saying we should be stupid, right? You know, we've got medical personnel in our midst here. I'm not saying we're going to be stupid, but at the same time, it's not. A, I'm not talking about well, be foolish to do it. I'm saying, is fear ruling us? Does that make sense? Are we under the control of fear or not? Is 
is Christ ruling us or is something else ruling us? Are we drinking at the fountain of fear or the fountain of living water? I mean, Charles, you said we can't even see it from here. We can't. I hear Christians say all the time, wow, isn't it God great that God blesses us with no persecution? Really? Really? What is the evidence, the biblical evidence that it's a blessing? Yes, persecution conforms us to Christ. It's part of God's disciplining process, isn't it? That matures us in Christ. And if, you, if they hated Christ, they're going to hate his followers. They don't hate his followers. Oh, wait a second, what, what? Well, that's just God's blessing. Well, I'm not so sure that's the case. So I think you're right. Yeah. We'll endure well and focus on Christ and grow in Christ because of the persecution. Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%, Tom. 100%. I, I've encouraged you to do this before. I'll encourage you then again. I'm going to close. If you want to get a sense of the historical church doing this well, pick up Fox's Book of Martyrs and start reading through the Fox's Book of Martyrs. And you get a sense of Acts 19, 21 through 2, 21. You, you get a sense of it. And it's convicting. I know, Lois, you read it a while ago. It's convicting, isn't it? Powerfully convicting. To see people who, like us, did not physically see Jesus. So we always make the excuse, well, but, you know, these people saw Jesus. <laughs> they did not see Jesus. And they were living in the midst of a bunch of heresy, false doctrine. And they were enthralled with the true Jesus. And they were willing to suffer and die. Well, we are out of time, far out of time. It's a great study of an apologetics. The implication, if I may just say this, is the apologetic of the book demands that we know the Christ of the book. It demands that we know what God says about himself in the scriptures. Because if you take what God says in the scriptures about himself, you can compare it and contrast it with any other thing in this world, and nothing holds a candle to it. Absolutely nothing does. And that's exactly what Paul does right here in the book, of, or Luke does in the book of Acts. And the transformation that we see in light of the truth of the gospel is powerful. Is that familiar? Is it really familiar? Let's pray. Lord, help us. I ask you to move in our lives so that the story we see in Acts 19 through 21 <coughs> will not merely be a historic reality, a historic fact that we recognize that sounds familiar but that we will be people by your mercy and grace that will find that these, this story is familiar in our hearts 
and familiar in our lives as well for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen.